0: And after the assembly, uh, uh, school library and so you can go there and uh, have that you can also register your or, or review the uh, the information that we have in the directory and uh, can we turn that down a little bit is it loud for you guys yeah it, it, yeah okay so when the background is doing like this you know uh, is, no okay I think that's is that better Yeah. Okay. perfect. Thank you. Uh, And so you can review the uh, the information that we have just to make sure that we have the the, the most updated version of your uh, contact information. And so make sure you uh, go by and do that. Um, Saturday, we're having our ministries meeting. This is a quarterly meeting for anyone that would like to attend that's involved at some level in a ministry here at Sunset. Uh, We'll have breakfast at 8, and the meeting will go from 8.30 to 10.30. We'll have a time of uh, reflection and praise. We'll have a time to hear reports from various ministries, and then uh, we'll divide into groups and pray with our elders, Uh, and so uh, that's always a a good meeting. We look forward to that Saturday, June 1st. And then right around the corner, uh, we have our Summer Bible Club. The theme this year is Roar, and uh, we'll be looking at different kinds of contexts that have to do with uh, wild and savage places of the world, and uh, how God kind of takes us through and, and makes sure, make sure that we are safe, and so uh, we want uh, all of you to know to make sure your your kids are involved, and this will be uh, our summer curriculum uh, on Wednesday night. so don't forget to roar. Um, Speaking about the children, we want to introduce the Children's ministers' Ministries Youth Intern for the summer, and so I'm going to invite Jennifer Birch to come up. Let me tell you a little bit about Jennifer. Uh, She was born and raised in California. Her father and grandfather are preachers in California. Uh, In December, she will graduate from Harding University with a degree in elementary education, and um and this is not the least of her uh uh features uh or or accolades but she is also related to Dirk rushing and so uh please give a warm welcome to Jennifer she's going to be here with us this summer and i would like to uh offer a prayer in her behalf uh before we uh continue on with this morning let's pray Father, thank you for Jennifer being with us this summer. I know there's a lot of things that she could have chosen to do. We pray, Father, that you will bless her, uh, enrich her experience and her awareness of of what we're doing here at Sunset. I know she has already been and will continue to be such a wonderful blessing uh, to our children and to Julie and the children's ministry. We pray, Father, that she have just a wonderful experience, that you will bless and guide her. Uh, um, Bless her parents as they might be concerned about her being so far from home, and pray, Father, that, uh, that it just be a wonderful experience all the way around. We thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Uh, one, one other thing, and, and I guess this is just how things roll at sunset sometimes. Uh, this is her first well, She got here on uh, Thursday. Tuesday. Yeah, I was going to say it seems like it's been a whole week. Uh, got here on Tuesday, and um, and 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 the Bergmans are out of town this weekend, so she is in charge of the children's ministry for her first Sunday at Sunset, and she's in charge. So uh, if you see her, give her a hug and uh, and and say a prayer for her, because uh, uh, but but things will go uh, uphill or downhill, whichever direction from here. Uh, I also want to introduce you to another couple, um, Marcus and Casey Southall. Uh, there they are. They, can wait. they are newlyweds and they are now going to be a part of our Sunset family. And so um, it is nice to have Marcus has been around a while. Casey has been visiting. She will be moving from uh, Nashville and uh, we're excited to have them here as a part of our Sunset family. All righty. Who is the Goat. Now, before any of you start sending me texts and emails about suggesting that Jesus is a GOAT, uh, let me clarify. You guys know that GOAT is an acronym, right? And it stands for greatest of all time. Okay? Now, evidently, it started with uh, Muhammad Ali back some years ago when he proclaimed himself, I am the greatest, and then he licensed a company called the greatest of all time inc and then that got abbreviated to g-o-a-t and since that time there have been ongoing discussions of who is the greatest of all time in any given sport or any different kind of arena you know when you think about it what would it take to be the greatest of all time well when you think about sports it would be whoever wins the most whoever has the best statistics, whoever makes the most money. And so people like in basketball, Michael Jordan's name has come up. In tennis, maybe Serena Williams or, or Roger Federer or any number of different kinds of things. In football, there's some guy with some team up in uh, New England, but we'll just kind of move on from that. Um, but But there's different ways that you can think about the greatest of all time, the GOAT. What would it take for you to be the greatest of all time in your career, whatever your career is? What would it take? What would that look like for you to be designated and recognized as the greatest of all time? You know, I think there's a, a fundamental human assumption that greatness is measured by power in the form of physical strength, physical prowess, perhaps in military might, The quantity of money, how much fame, any of the things that we might assume are connected with our own human ability and our ability to look (laughs) down on other individuals. So to be the greatest means that you have the most sales or you have the highest degree or the highest salary or the highest rank or the best office or and then the list goes on and on and on. The greatest of all time. In today's text, in Mark chapter 9, Jesus is going to take our conventional wisdom because it's not new to us. He's going to take our conventional wisdom and turn its, turn it on its head. because for Jesus being great has nothing to do with our importance or our authority, our ambition or our human achievements. Jesus will measure greatness, not by success, but by service. Now, our text today begins in John. uh, uh, (laughs) Where did John come from? Uh, Mark chapter nine, verse 30 and following. This is the second time Jesus is going to announce his upcoming death. What's interesting, there's three times in this middle section of Mark 8, 9, and 10, chapters 8, 9, and 10, where Jesus three times is going to give a prediction of his upcoming suffering, rejection, uh, 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 murder, death, and then resurrection. After each one of these, there is a time where the disciples seem to go counter everything that Jesus is saying. It provides an opportunity for them to Jesus give some additional teaching on what does it really mean to follow him. And so we're going to read through the text, and then what I'd like to do is to kind of walk through the text beginning from the end of it backwards, and then we'll end up at the beginning. But let's go ahead and read through the text now. Mark chapter 9, verses 30 and following. Leaving that region, they traveled through Galilee. Jesus didn't want anyone to know he was there, for he wanted to spend more time or specific time with the disciples to teach them. He said to them, this is the prediction, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of his enemies. He will be killed, but three days later he will rise from the dead. The disciples didn't understand what he was saying, however, and they were afraid to ask him what he meant. The last time... Jesus had this conversation with his disciples. Peter jumped in, got reprimanded, got called Satan. And so now the disciples are a little gun shy. They're not going to say anything. They're just going to be quiet to Jesus's face. After they arrived at Capernaum, settled in at a house, went walking. Jesus asked the disciples, what what were you guys talking about on the road? (laughs) Again, they start kicking their feet. Looking down, crickets, they didn't answer because they had been arguing about which of them was the greatest. Which of them was the goat. Now, now keep in mind, Jesus has just told them he's going to be crucified or he's going to be killed. And then on the way from where that conversation took place to this house in Capernaum, They're arguing about which of them is bigger, which of them is better, which of them is more important, which of them likes Jesus more and which of them Jesus likes more. It's kind of unsettling that that's where they went. So Jesus sat down, called the 12 disciples over to him and said, Whoever wants to be first or whoever wants to be the greatest must take last place and be the servant of everyone else. Then he put a little child among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Anyone who welcomes a little child like this on my behalf welcomes me. And anyone who welcomes me not only welcomes me, but also my father who sent me. John said to Jesus, Well, well, teacher, we saw someone using your name to cast out demons, but we told him to stop because he wasn't in our group. Literally, John says, because he wasn't following us. Don't stop him, Jesus said. No one who performs a miracle in my name will, uh, will soon be able to speak evil of me. Anyone who is not against us is for us. If anyone gives you even a cup of cold water because you belong to the Messiah, I tell you the truth, that person will surely be rewarded. But if you curse one of these little ones who trusts in me to, and uh, who trusts in me, if you curse them to fall into sin, it would be better for you to have to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone hung around your neck. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to enter eternal life with only one hand than to go into the unquenchable fires of hell with two hands. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter eternal life with only one foot than to be thrown into hell with two feet. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. It is better to enter the kingdom of God with only one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where maggots never die and the fire never goes out. For everyone will be tested with fire. Salt is good for seasoning, but if it loses its flavor, how do you make it salty again? You must have the qualities of salt among yourselves and live at peace with each other. Well, this is, it seems a little bit disjointed in terms of the text, and it seems to get pretty serious there for just a minute. And and that's where I want to start as we think about uh, uh, what Jesus is saying. He concludes this text with some of the strongest language he's ever going to use. I mean, it's pretty graphic, talking about cutting off body parts. Uh, he's talking about if you stay in, stand in the way of one of these little ones uh, coming to faith, that you're going to get drowned in the ocean. Uh, we've talked before how uh, the Jewish people were a land-loving people, and that there was not only them, but many people in the ancient world had a significant fear of the water so that their worst nightmare would be to drown at sea and this is what jesus is threatening for anyone who stops the progress of one of the little ones uh, and we'll talk about what that means one of the little ones in terms of their coming to faith What, what what he's using is what's called hyperbole it's an exaggeration but this is an extreme case And he's saying nothing that we would consider important like hands or feet or eyes. Things that we might allow us to sin. None of those things is so important that it should stand in the way of eternal life. If there is something that is causing you to sin, whatever it looks like, however dear and near it is to your heart and your life, then you better get rid of it. Now, Jesus is not talking in literal terms, even though in the past some individuals have taken his words literally. The Jews uh, in their their law had various instructions that you were not supposed to mutilate yourself. There were different kinds of instructions about that. And so it's obvious that's not what Jesus is saying. But he's trying to draw our attention because he uses language so strong that what we tend to do is go to the other way. Well, it's not really that important. He didn't mean that. And what he's trying to say is, yes, it's so important that I want you to pay attention. It's like that splash of cold water that would wake us up, that would help us to say, he is serious about this. Our behavior matters. The way we treat these little ones, whoever they are, the way we treat them is so important that if we lead them to sin, it would be better if we were drowned in the ocean. He takes the call for us to be his followers so seriously. And he's talking and he ends the text talking about sacrifice. Fire and salt were associated with the sacrifices in the temple. And he's saying, if you really want to follow me, this is the path. You don't get to choose your own path. The path to greatness, the path to becoming the first is the path that begins follows and ends with service, with sacrifice, and giving your lives for other people. And unfortunately, that message in today's world is not real popular. It wasn't real popular in that world either. And in fact, Jesus talks about it in such strong terms because they still didn't get it. The middle text deals with John and, uh, and the other disciples. And, and, and as I pointed out as we we're reading through, what John says is he wasn't following us. That was John's thing. They're supposed to be following us. We've been designated with the rights to the kingdom. We've been designated with the power to be able to cast out demons. He is a nobody, and yet he still doesn't want to follow along with us. And John wants to cut this individual out. John wants to cut him away from God's blessing. And Jesus' response was, no, he's not against us, so let him be. And and, and as you think about how this plays out in in Christian lives since then, it's unfortunate that that particular teaching has not been one of the hallmarks of the Christian faith. Christians have not been inclined to let things be. And yet, that's Jesus' very, very clear instruction in this particular case. Whoever is not against us is for us. Now, Jesus doesn't suggest that there can be any kind of neutrality towards who he is and his identity as God's son. But when it comes to us deciding who's in and who's out, Jesus kind of lets us know that that's not our job, that that's in God's hands. And our job is to follow Jesus and to follow it faithfully. And then that leads us to the initial story. A couple of years back, psychologist Milton Rokich wrote a book called The Three Christs of Ypsilanti. Have you ever heard of Ypsilanti? I know one person has at least. <laughs> it's a town in Michigan, <laughs> <laughs> and, and if uh, and if you were to talk to a person from Michigan, they would hold up. Well, you know, it's and it's and they would show on your It would show right over there. Rokic described his attempts to treat three patients at a psychiatric hospital in Ypsilanti, Michigan, who suffered with delusions of grandeur. They had the Messiah complex. They each thought that they were the Messiah. And they have been treated up to this point separately in separate rooms and no contact with one another. So Rokich decided what would happen if we put them in an AA type 12 step program for people suffering with the Messiah complex. Says it led to some interesting conversations. One of them would claim I'm the Messiah, the son of God. I have been sent here to save the world. And then Rokic would ask him, well, how do you know? And the response was, God told me. One of the other patients would say, I never told you any such thing. (laughs) And they went round and round and round. It's a crazy idea, right? Putting a bunch of deluded individuals in one group. Individuals that each think they're the greatest insane. And yet that's what we have in Mark chapter 9. A group of individuals following Jesus, and each of them thinks they are the goat. They are the greatest. And so Jesus goes at them head on and says, no, if you really want to be the greatest, you're going to have to be the last. You're going to have to be the servant. Now, it strikes us, even though We've lived with it long enough that it's easy for us to say. It's quite different when we have to live it. I think our attitudes are still very similar to what the Greeks would feel. They considered serving people as demeaning and undignified. Plato, for all of his good deeds and good works, once said, How can a man be happy when he has to serve someone? And, and so their idea was that serving others is so demeaning that it's not even possible. And so to help illustrate, Jesus calls a child. Now, we, for the most part, love children. And we know that scriptures talk about the innocence and the beauty and the humility of children. And we know that scripture and Jesus himself tells us that if we are not like little children and we don't have their faith, we'll not get into heaven. And that's all true. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's not talking about the characteristics of faith that children might have. In this particular case, the focus is on How do you receive children? What do you do to welcome children? Because in the first century, children were viewed as dispensable. I mean, this is probably true, not just in the first century, but any culture where you have a high mortality rate and a high demand for human labor, you put those two together and children don't really survive and make it and are not really considered. There have been cases where in ancient worlds they weren't even named and given any kind of recognition till after they'd turned three or four or five years old because most kids were going to die anyway, so why invest in these kids that weren't going to make it? And Jesus grabs one of these little children, someone who the community, the, the, the society would view as indispensable, unimportant, and insignificant, and says, The way that you follow me is by giving importance to one of these kinds of individuals. And I'm sure the disciples looked at Jesus and said, That? We have to consider that as worthy of welcome? The act of receiving someone, when Jesus says you receive them or welcome them, means that you treat them like visiting royalty. You open up your home. You offer them the finest bed, the finest food, everything you have. If someone comes to your house and you don't have food, you go knocking on your friend's house and banging at the door, even if it's midnight, to get food so that you can let them in. You know those parables that Jesus taught. That's how you should treat children. You should bend over backwards to make sure that they're welcomed into your family, into your home, and into your life. Well, that's kind of like what we already do, right? I mean, that's our take on children. We love children and we want them with us. Except when we don't. (laughs) You know, one way that we can welcome children is to pay attention to them. I I read a story of a man who, when he was five years old, had an experience that changed the way he looked at university professors at, well university presidents uh, his the, the, the young man's mom was the dean of women women, and so she had an office near the uh, university president's uh, office and 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 this young five year old saw the students as they would get close for an appointment and they would wipe off their hands and they would be nervous and fidgety because they didn't know what was going to happen on the other side of that door and they would go in and, uh, and, and so he always had this perspective that university president presidents are just mean uh, ogres of individuals and that might be true but then one day he was playing and he would recognize the president by his black wingtip shoes and he saw the shoes approaching, and he started grabbing his toys to run, and the president got down on his knees and began to play and said, from that moment on, I looked at individuals in power just a little bit differently. So one way that we can welcome children is by interacting with them on their level with where they are. But I think an obvious application as we think about this is we can welcome them into our Sunday assemblies, as we have done on occasion. Now, part of this is going to require, remember, Jesus is not talking about becoming like a child in this text. He's talking about us changing our attitudes towards children or lesser ones. And I think he would broaden that to include anyone that we might consider to be less important in society and he's saying the real issue is how well can we adapt and change to not only put up with, not only tolerate, but how can we welcome? Because we've all had those moments when I'm here for me. I've had a bad week and I just need some me and God time and I don't want any distractions. And this individual over here or that individual there or this wiggly, squirmy little child or this individual that kind of speaks out or this particular person that uh, might be a neighbor from the cerebral palsy uh, unit next door uh, residents They're just interrupting my me time with God. And what Jesus would say to us is when you welcome one of these You're not just welcoming some throwaway part of society. You are welcoming me. And when you welcome me, you're not only welcoming me, but you're also welcoming my father. And so what he's challenging us to do is to change our attitudes towards how we view people that we perceive or society perceives to be insignificant, unproductive, undervalued, And when we get to a point where we can welcome them, then we will be great. Because we are at our greatest when we are serving our community. For Jesus, success ultimately means being nailed to a cross and hung to die. Admiration means public humiliation and abuse. Being in control for Jesus means letting someone else betray him to his, by one of his closest friends. And it's ironic on this day when Jesus has just shared his heart, the disciples spend it arguing about which of them is the greatest. There's a church in Santa Fe, Mexico, that has a hand-lettered sign over the entrance to their sanctuary, auditorium there's only one entrance you have to go in that door and the sign that is painted says servants entrance there's only one way in and the only people that go in go in through the service entrance you might have had experience in your life where you were directed towards a servant's entrance you might have been directed to the door that the maids or the workers or other individuals go to You might have been directed to where the alley meets the back of the building, and that's where you're supposed to go in through, and you might think, I'm worthy of so much more. For Jesus, there's only one entrance, and every single entrance into the kingdom has a sign above it that says, Servants, interest." Greatness was not reserved for the gifted and the privileged. Jesus was the greatest of all time. And he invites us to join him and says, we too can be great if we will follow him in the way that we treat people who are different than us, who that we might perceive to be less than us, people that we might perceive to be uh, 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 insignificant and not as important as us. Jesus was the greatest because he was willing to put himself last and others first. And we can do that as well. If there's a way that we can pray for you in your life, in your struggles, in the situations that you're dealing with, we would love to do so. If you are at a point where you're wanting to follow the greatest of all time, we would love to help you with that as well. Let's all stand and sing.